Hello, and welcome to this Clinical Care Options and Practicing Clinicians Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Duval. This is the last of our podcast space on the larger educational program, The Biggest Risk to Cardiovascular Health, Addressing Social Determinants of Health in Nonvalvular Atrial Fibrillation. Today's episode begins with Dr. Keith Ferdinand, Professor of Medicine at Tulane Heart and Vascular Institute and Tulane University School of Medicine in New Orleans, Louisiana. Dr. Ferdinand will examine the effects of social determinants of health on anticoagulation prescribing in nonvalvular atrial fibrillation and look at areas for future study to better understand and address these social determinants. And then we'll hear Drs. Ferdinand and Coates, along with Laura Ross, answer learner questions from the live webinar. For more information on all of our faculty, along with a CME CE certified on demand webcast with downloadable slide sets and a clinical thought commentary, Please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what Dr. Ferdinand has to say regarding the effects of social determinants of health on non-valvular atrial fibrillation management, including disparities in anticoagulation prescribing. I'm yes. going to very briskly look at some of the guideline effects of approaching patients with AF. First of all, when you look at the guidelines, what we are treating is the anticoagulation to prevent cardiovascular events. And it can be done through multiple mechanisms. We know about warfarin, the newer direct oral anticoagulants. But underlying that, we have lifestyle interventions and medications to control, for instance, blood pressure. It's important also to recognize that there are increasing data that we can ablate arrhythmias and actually have what we call rhythm control, AF catheter-based ablation, improve symptoms and quality of life, especially in medication-resistant AF patients or patients who are intolerant to AF medications. Now, we don't have as much data on disparities in catheter-based or surgical approaches to AF, and we do need to have more data in that particular arena so that we can generalize the benefits of these interventions in an economically diverse population. But when we look at the use of ablation, it does appear Presently, this is based on over 16,000 patients, that patients who have private insurance and access actually have more use of AF catheter ablation. Looking at race ethnicity itself, we know that these are social terms, but for decades, oral anticoagulant with warfarin has been the cornerstone of AF management. It does reduce the risk of stroke by as much as 62%. But now there's clear benefit also of the DOAX. And before 2010, warfarin was the only anticoagulant that's available. Since that time, we've seen the emergence of these uh, newer agents now called direct oral anticoagulants. Nevertheless, there are racial ethnic disparities in the initiation, adherence, and quality of therapy. Let's look briefly at some of the data first related to warfarin use. This is over 135 patients hospitalized with AF and heart failure, the Black patients who were hospitalized had less use of guideline-based warfarin therapy. This is an older generic medicine underutilized. And then in a retrospective study of almost 100,000 patients in the VA system, the mean adjusted time in the therapeutic range with warfarin was higher in the white patients than the Black patients. So here using warfarin, well demonstrated to have benefit the white patients were in therapeutic range for a longer period of time. Another retrospective cohort also in the VA showed that the time to getting into therapeutic range was higher 
for white patients doing it in a more appropriate manner than in the black patients. So even using warfarin, which is a generic widely available, there appear to be those disparities. Let's move forward now to the DOAC. We don't have as much analyses of racial ethnic disparities with the DOAC. They have been approved both in Europe first in 2008 and then by the FDA in 2010 to be effective for the treatment versus warfarin. But we have inequities that are starting to emerge, looking at the Orbit AF study, a retrospective US widespread study. Black patients had lower uses of the DOAC initiation. And another study looking at patients who were medically insured, 65 years and older, DOACs were still less likely initiated in the black versus the white patients. This particular slide tries to tease out what are some of the variables that explain the underutilization of DOAC. I bring your attention to the plot, which is on the uh, right-hand side of the slide. And you see the line that is one, that means no difference. On the side where you have black and Hispanic patients, you see in terms of clinical factors, there's an underutilization of the DOAC. Then when attempting to correct this based on the facility or the practice factors of the provider, that underrepresentation of DOACs persists for the black and Hispanic patients. And at the bottom, when you correct for all of the factors we can, including the socioeconomic factors, unfortunately, you still see this statistically significant underrepresentation of the Black and Hispanic patients with the DOAC. Why is this? Well, it's really unclear. There may be bias in the system. We may treat patients differently based on race, ethnicity. It may also be related to socioeconomic status, health-seeking behavior, and adherence. DOAC use is increasing. Warfarin is decreasing. But Black patients are still more likely to be prescribe warfarin versus the contemporary DOAC versus white patients. A study out of Florida and Puerto Rico showed that black patients with AF were more likely to be discharged prescribed with warfarin. Another cohort, patients who did have insurance, the black patients were still less likely to receive anticoagulation versus the white patient. And in Medicare beneficiaries where access should have been blunted, the Black patients were more likely to discontinue anticoagulation after a year, which speaks to shared decision-making, health literacy, and health-seeking behavior, where even when clinicians provide the appropriate care, there may be less adherence. What about anticoagulation prescribing in general? Looking at hospital-based registries, Hispanic patients were less likely than white or even Black patients to be discharged on any type of anticoagulant. The ACC Pinnacle is the largest cardiovascular outpatient registry and American Indian and Alaskan Native patients, even within this registry of well-done practices, were significantly likely lice, less likely to be treated with anticoagulation versus other races and ethnicities. Now let's look briefly at non-pharmacologic air interventions. As I mentioned before, we now have devices, including ablation for cardiac rhythm control, in one longitudinal registry in the United States, unfortunately, white patients were more likely to receive antiarrhythmic medications and interventional procedures, including cardioversion and catheter ablation versus black patients. This cartoon shows that there's an increase in catheter ablation from 2016 to 2019. I bring your attention to the bottom curve here you see the black patients in the red diamond, 
the Latinx patients in the green square, less likely use of catheter ablation. And it's been persistent for years compared to here, both white identified and Asian identified patients. Unfortunately, I do clinical trials, but in clinical trials related to atrial fibrillation, this disparity has been shown and it's been persistent for years. The white participants are in the dark blue. The underrepresented racial ethnic minorities are in the light blue. And you can see, despite the fact that we have an increasing diversity in the U.S. population, there is overwhelmingly a white participants in the landmark clinical trials using the DOACs versus the racial ethnic minority. And when you told it over to the right side of the slide, you see the total is over 70% of the patients would be self-identified as white, suggesting we need to do more in terms of representation in trials, U.S. trials, international trials, observational studies. And this poor enrollment comes from multi-factors, but what it does lead to is underrepresentation of racial ethnic groups. It limits our ability to generalize what we find in these trials and it suggests that we as researchers may have a selection bias in how we develop trials and recruitment of patients. In assessing the stroke risk, we know that there is a higher risk of stroke, especially in Black patients. There's been a charge that maybe we should include Black race as a means of predicting stroke beyond the conventional chad score. The problem with that is that if you add Black race as an additional risk factor, you may capture the social construct, but you may also lead to an overgeneralization, and you may underrepresent the impact of structural racism, historical, cultural, institutional, and interpersonal discrimination, neighborhood segregation, underinsured status, which is not just seen in Black patients, but also Hispanic, American Indian, and Alaska Native individuals. All of these things lead to these persistent inequities and simply giving an additional point for Black race may underrepresent these structural problems which we need to address in our society. In the future, what I would suggest is that along with regular clinical factors, we use important ways to identify these social determinants of health. Further research should also include how we use these social determinants to affect our patients and our understanding of these patients. It's important that we address these social determinants. This includes noting race, ethnicity, financial resources, rurality, patients in rural agent areas, residential environment, language proficiency, health literacy, and social support. And our my final slide, I envision in the future, if we're going to have a more equitable, just society, we need to make sure that high-quality, evidence-based care is afforded for all of our patients, regardless of sex, gender, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, or geography. Laura? Thank you, Dr. Fernand, and to all of our faculty for that excellent presentation. We've had a number of questions from participants, and we'll do our best to answer as many as we can. But I think we'll go back to that patient case here, as I think as we talk about it, it will answer many of the questions that came up. So recall this is a 56-year-old Black female with uncontrolled hypertension, type 2 diabetes, elevated BMI at 38. And she noticed she had some palpitations and weakness. EKG showed AFib. She started on warfarin, but had those wide variations in INR. Despite being given a prescription for rivaroxaban, it wasn't covered by insurance. So I'd like to talk to the faculty about what strategies would 
you implement to really improve non-valvular atrial fibrillation outcomes in this particular patient? Well, first of all, we don't have strong data that you're definitely going to have less complications with the DOAC. There does appear to be some data, however, that suggests that major bleeding, especially intracerebral bleeding, is less. And we know that in patients who have low literacy, low access, warfarin can be a toxic medication. So what I would do is take the extra step to work with either the hospital pharmacy or a local private pharmacy, which I have a good relationship, to see what they can do to assess how we can better get this patient to rivaroxaban, because perhaps if the patient is unable to maintain therapeutic INRs, we could decrease the complications of the warfarin therapy. I would jump in. I agree with you, Dr. Ferdinand. I think there's some important clues to the variations in INR, and I would step back. You both have talked about literacy-related issues. Even if we can get this patient on River Roxaban, and I agree with those strategies, we need to make sure that the education is at the right level, that this patient understands the importance of taking her medication every day to look for early signs of bleeding, and so making sure that if we can get her on the right medication, that she still is connected to us, has confidence in the care that she's providing, and is on the lookout for potential complications. Great points. I think another big champion in a case like this is the pharmacist. So before many of us discharge patients in the hospital, we can access our hospital pharmacist to do a price check so that they're not caught off guard when they go try to pick up the medication and it's $500 or whatnot, or often have tools for what coupons might be available, social worker while they're in the hospital can access, you know, if they qualify for social assistance and things like that. I think another question many of our participants had in particular, Susan talked about, you know, what about home INR monitors? And Medicare often does cover it. One thing that my practice has come into um, conflict with is, is that our anticoagulation clinic does not have a relationship with home INR monitors. <laughs> and, and so, unless they do it on their own with their primary care physicians, it's been difficult to get implemented for my own patients. Dr. Fernandan and Dr. Coons, do either of you have more experience with home INR monitors? Yeah, I have some experience with that. Uh, the home INR monitors may help, but remember if a person has low health literacy, if they don't have a stable diet, especially related to green leafy vegetables in their diet, or if they don't have a good understanding of how to take the medicines as you adjust warfarin, they still are going to be at risk for having complications and simply having a monitor at home is not going to overcome some of those barriers related to adherence, understanding of how to take the medicines, how to adjust, and some of the consistency in diet. And that's where the, the DOACs really have a leg up. Yeah, I would uh, probably push with uh, in collaboration with our social workers to get uh, home testing. Uh, so sending someone out from our laboratory we don't have as much, I don't have as much experience with, with home INR monitoring. I'd rely on working collaboratively with our social work department. Great. Another participant asked, with a great name, Laura, what strategies do you use in getting patients on Eloquist? Are there any other tricks that either of you use? I know I covered a few in my talk, but anything else I might have missed? Well, not, not to use any particular brand name, we know that most of the newer DOACs do have patient in need assistance for patients who have no insurance, or if patients have limited insurance, there are ways you can start them and then work with the pharmacist on some of the, the branded approaches to getting medications where they are able to get medicines with cards and coupons at a lower cost. 
with Medicare, most Medicare plans will cover the DOACs. There may be more of a copay, but with the insurance payments, there are some cards, medical cards that will assist with getting the newer DOACs. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think emphasizing the convenience uh, is, a, is a big deal. And uh, engaging family with the patient's consent is a good way to have an ally in the home. Agreed. Great. And then Susan wrote in and said, well, there's probably a selection bias in including minorities in trials. Do you think the history of using minorities in unethical research has prevented them from wanting to be involved? And how do you combat that kind of suspicion being a healthcare clinician? Well, that's a really big problem. We know even, for instance, with the COVID-19 vaccination, there were barriers where especially African-Americans would talk about Tuskegee, where 400 Black men had syphilis. And even when penicillin was shown to be a therapeutic, it wasn't offered to them and they continued in the syphilis study. What I do is I confronted head on and I would suggest to them that I recognize that some bad things have happened in medicine in the past, but I'm offering you this new medication because I think it's really beneficial to you. It has not been studied enough in our population, but it really will help you. And if you know warfarin, it can be really toxic and it's gonna be much easier for you to take. I think that message kind of resounds with the patient. You have what I call cultural humility. You recognize that the history has been bad. You recognize that their misgivings are real and then say what the benefit of the therapy you're offering you. Well stated, Dr. Pertman. That's wonderful. And then Heather asked, can you please explain the mechanism behind how DOACs work and why we don't monitor the INR with them? And when a patient is started on a DOAC, how long does it take for the medication to become therapeutic? Kind of some of the base work here for a lot of what we talked about. But since we have a few minutes, I think that would be great to review. The coagulation cascade is very complex. The DOACs work in factor 10A in inhibition, so they're more direct that's why they're called direct oral coagulants. Whereas a warfarin works through vitamin K antagonism, it works in multiple mechanisms, and it has more of a derangement on the protein and the INR. The DOACs may have a minor variation, but it's not a way that we measure therapy. In fact, we measure therapy by just giving the medicine and looking at how it works. The onset of action is quite rapid. You can actually give DOACs for acute pulmonary embolism, deep vein thrombosis. And the offset is quite rapid. If the patient does have excessive bleeding or bruising, there are some ways that you can attempt to reverse it, but I simply will just stop it after a day or so, the direct oral coagulants are gone. So they work quickly and then they can be removed if you have a patient has a surgical procedure or they're gonna have extractions and you don't wanna give them the medicine for a day or so and they won't have excessive bleeding. Whereas warfarin is very slow onset, that's why we have to place the patients on heparin for three days or so. And the offset, if the person is bleeding, that's why we have to give the vitamin K or the bleeding can be excessive for days. Anything else, Dr. Fernandez or Dr. Kuntz, as we wrap this webinar up? Dr. Kuntz can give the last word. <laughs> My only comment, thank you both, is don't be discouraged about social determinants, thinking that it's out of your control as a clinician. We can, have, we can do a lot to address these social determinants and, and think beyond the direct healthcare we provide and thinking about literacy issues for our patients, connecting with other caregivers. You know, there's a lot that we can do. And I often find when I have these discussions, the thought or the, the eyes go down like, there's nothing I can do about these issues. 
there is a lot as clinicians we can do. And hopefully you've heard some of the tools today to get started. Wonderful. Well, many thanks to our faculty for an excellent program and this informative Q&A session. Thank you all for participating in this program. And we hope you enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Dr. Ferdinand, Dr. Kuntz, and Ms. Ross for your expert insights into this challenging subject. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program and to join the discussion, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening.